pray. Father, God, we thank you, Lord, for how majestic you are. We sing about your majesty, Lord. We think we sing about your grace and your mercy, and we hear about the fact that before your throne we have a mediator, an intercessor, one who's died for our sins. Father, we thank you so much that you would send your son to die for the, for our sins, Lord, for the sins of people who deserve no kindness from you. God, we thank you for the privilege to gather together here this morning to hear your word, to hopefully get a better understanding of your grace and the eternal plan and beauty of your decision to save some sinful people for your glory, Lord. I pray that you would help us, Lord, give us ears to hear, Give us eyes to see what is true in your word. And though this is a mysterious and a somewhat complicated topic we're talking about today, God, I pray that it would be clear and that the beauty and the power that's in it would be evident, Lord, and that people would come to understand your grace in a deeper way this day. That we would all come to understand your grace in a deeper way now, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the text for this morning is John 10, verse 1 to 6. And so I'll be focusing on verse 3 in that section. And then also, we're going to jump down and we're going to read verses 14 and 15 um, as our text for this morning. So uh, let me just start. This is the word of the Lord. John chapter 10. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Now jumping down to verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. This is the word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. So I'll be continuing this morning, as was mentioned, on the topic of grace, the theme of grace that Pastor Thomas has been unpacking lately. And um, as I said before, the focal point of the first section is going to be on verse 3. So let me read the, just the bottom half of verse 3 there. It says, And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. This verse makes it clear that there are certain sheep that belong to Jesus, to the Good Shepherd, to the Lord. And we see here that Jesus has His own sheep, that they hear His voice. And He knows them personally. He knows them intimately. He knows them all by name. We see the same thing in verse 14. Let's, let's read verse 14. I am the Good Shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. So since these texts make it abundantly clear that there are some people who are God's sheep or God's children, and that there are others who are not, I want to dig into an important question this morning. It's pertaining to God's grace, and it relates to predestination and election. Okay, that's what we're going to dive into here. So related to those first two verses I read, in verse 15... It shows that Jesus lays down His life for specifically His own sheep. Specifically for those sheep that He knows and He calls. It says, As the Father knows Me, even so I know the Father, and I lay My life down for the sheep. Verse 15. So, this verse is saying that there are some people who are Jesus' sheep, and it is specifically for them that He lays down His life. 
This morning, I want us to better understand who it was that Jesus actually laid his life down for on the cross. So we will evaluate the extent of Jesus' atonement this morning, and thereby I'm hoping we'll better be able to understand the grace of God. I hope to persuade you this morning that Jesus Christ only died for his own sheep. By the end, I hope you'll better understand the Bible's teaching that Jesus' work on the cross was a particular, a definite atonement that was intended only for his sheep specifically. Now you might be wondering what I mean by particular, particular grace, particular atonement. By particular, I mean the opposite of general. Okay, so what I mean is a particular grace is a grace that belongs to particular people. It's a grace that is given to specific people. It is different from a general grace that is available to and given to everybody without exception. A particular grace for particular people. Now, as we move into this topic, I think it's helpful for us to just get an overview of the basic facts regarding election and God's decree, the basic biblical doctrine regarding it, because this ties so critically into our understanding of the extent of the atonement. Who did Jesus die for? So there's nowhere better to go. There's nowhere that this doctrine of election and God's eternal decree is more clearly and unarguably stated right, than in Ephesians chapter 1. There in verse 4, Paul explains that the God, that God the Father chose the redeemed in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world, that they should be holy and without blame before him in love. And further down in verse 11, Paul adds, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So clearly from these verses, it's a very simple extraction, but like I said, it's very unarguable. It's hard to argue in these verses that God works everything according to the counsel of His will, first of all, and that He chose those who are to be saved even before the foundation of the world was ever laid. Other verses say things like, God knows the end from the beginning. He knows the end before it ever comes. And so only, it is only logical, it is only a logical conclusion then um, that we can understand that God already knows who His people are, right? God already knows ahead of time who His people are. He knows the difference between the sheep and the goats before they are ever born, before they ever do an act of choosing, before they ever do an act of sinning. He already knows His sheep before they are ever born. That's why our text this morning very plainly says he calls his own sheep by name. His sheep are the ones that he had known before all time ever began. And it is also just plain logic to say that when Jesus says, I lay down my life for his sheep, then he is also saying that his atoning work is done, is limited to, is particularly for those sheep that he has predestined and eternally known. It's a logical deduction that we can make if that's what Scripture teaches about election. So admittedly, we're dealing with an incredibly mysterious and a controversial topic this morning, right? And, that it, and it truly is something that's hard to understand. The, the Scriptures plainly say there are some things in Scripture that are hard for us to understand. This would be one of those that I would categorize as that. That's why the confessional writers in our confession, say the doctrines of such high mystery are to be handled with special prudence and care. Special prudence and care belong to certain things. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't handle them, right? Just because they're handled with special prudence and care does not mean we shouldn't handle them. Even though they are difficult and controversial, we stand to benefit a great deal, a lot, from studying these things. We, we stand to benefit a lot spiritually and in our walk with God from thinking about these things from looking at this and looking what the Bible has to say about the extent of the atonement. So the reason that this teaching, the real reason that this teaching is so controversial, at least for our, modern, our current context, is because this message that Jesus Christ died only for His specific sheep, it actually flies in the face of much of what is preached today. Much of what is said in pulpits around the world today. 
The gospel that is preached today is usually a gospel that says Jesus died for every person on earth to pay for their sins. And then what? Now it is up to each person to decide for themselves, to make up their mind whether they will accept his salvation or not, whether they will become a sheep, right? It's up to each person. Now, the reality is there's some truth to this. There is some truth to this. But I will offer more of an explanation as to why this message leaves something lacking further on in the sermon. And the other reason that this topic is so controversial is because it seems to rub, it doesn't seem to really jive well with our modern sensibilities regarding inclusivity and equal opportunity and things like that that we consider so important. Some people will read what the Bible says about election and the particular nature of the, of the atonement and they'll say, that's not fair. They'll say to God, how could you be good and loving and allow some people to go to hell? God, how could you be good and loving and choose some people and not others? So hopefully we'll be able to come this morning to an understanding that we as sinners have no right to talk to God that way. We just don't have a right to talk to God that way at all. When sinful people approach the holy God, the last thing that they should be excited about or concerned about is fairness and equality. Right? If God give us what was fair... There would never be one of us in heaven, right? When we come to God, we're not talking, God, give me what's fair in terms of human logic, in terms of the world's mentality. No, that's not going to work. If God gives us what we justly deserved, then the just God would leave no hope for any of us, right? So I hope we can come to understand that that's also not going to work this morning. So my aim this morning is to show that regardless of what another preacher has told you or what you heard growing up, or what your modern sensibilities or regarding fairness and equality say to you, you must know that the only kind of grace that saves sinners is a particular grace. A particular grace. That's a grace that says, I call my own sheep by name and lead them out and lay down my life for them. That's a grace that says God chose us and planned us to be His sheep before creation ever began. That's the only kind of grace that can truly save. That's the only kind of grace that gives us hope. And I think the best way to actually go about proving this to you is by looking at some counterfeits, looking at some wrong views about um, grace and wrong views about the atonement and showing you that all the other approaches, all the other ways that people go about explaining who it was that Jesus died for, they end up either falling short of what the Bible says they fall short of the glory of God, and, or they ultimately end up leaving humanity in sin and despair. A combination of all those. It's, it's either they're going to fall short of what the Bible teaches, fall short of the glory of God, or they're just going to leave us hopeless and in despair. So when it comes to the atonement, all of the potential beliefs and views regarding the extent of the atonement in all of their different shapes and all of their different sizes can be boiled down to three views. And I'm, admittedly, I give these kind of not the nicest of names. That's because I don't think they're the nicest of things. The first one is the cheap grace view. The second one is the partial grace view. And then the third one is the true one, the particular grace view. Okay, so we're going to go through those, unpacking those and understanding why it is that God's grace needs to be a particular grace and why it is that only a particular grace can save us. So first, let's look at cheap grace. The cheap grace person is the one that says, it's not fair for Jesus to die for a particular group of people and not for others. It's also not fair for a loving God to send anyone to hell. Therefore, it must be the case that Jesus died for every single person without exception and that that uh, death and atonement for those people will actually have the effect of bringing them into heaven will actually have the effect that everyone will go to heaven and be saved. This view is otherwise called universalism. It's, easy to, it's, it's, it's memorable when you call it the cheap grace view. In this cheap grace view, I could live my entire life in complete reckless sinfulness, yet I could live with the assurance that according to this view, I will be assured a spot in heaven. I could live completely reckless and completely sinful, Obviously, this renders the death and cross of Jesus Christ to be cheap and meaningless 
Why? Because this is a view that says we can have access to God's grace and Jesus' death without even being changed by them. Without being changed by them. In other words, the cross has no power. What, an, what a dishonor this is to the cross of Jesus Christ. To have a view like this about what He did on the cross. In addition to that, this view makes a mockery of the constant demand throughout Scripture that we must repent. We must turn from our sin. Right? It makes a mockery out of that. In addition, this view also outright ignores all of the biblical teaching regarding the existence and the punishment that comes as a result of rebelling against the holy God. It just ignores it. In order to soothe its sensibilities to uh, maybe make God out to be less mean or something like that, this view actually reads a verse, for instance, a verse about a lake of fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels, or a verse about weeping and gnashing of teeth. And instead of fearing and trembling and being very concerned and repenting for sin and acknowledging that that is a truth, that is what we need to be aware of, that hell really is real, and that this place really does exist. Instead of doing that, instead of repenting and believing, instead this view just says, I'm going to pretend like those verses aren't there. I believe in the cheap grace view. The view that says the Gospel and the, and the death of Jesus on the cross does not really have an impact. Now interestingly, people who hold this view, they're actually going to think that what they're doing is making the grace or the atonement of Jesus look better. They're going to sell it like that. They're going to come to you and they're going to say, well, guess what? The atonement covers all people. Doesn't that make it look bigger? Doesn't that make it look better? I guess you could try to argue that. But the problem is that's not what the Scriptures teach. And additionally, like I said, that teaches a cheap view of what Jesus did. A cheap and ineffective Gospel. This is a Gospel. This is a message that is completely devoid of its costly, life-changing power. That costly, life-changing power that, um, that God has ordained as the means to save people, to change people, to bring them into relationship with Him. And when you're interacting with that kind of a claim where somebody is saying, well, this view of the atonement is bigger, or makes grace look better, what you should always clarify is this. When I say Jesus died for a specific set of people, for His sheep, what I'm not saying is that His blood couldn't save everybody. His blood is infinitely valuable. It could save infinite masses of infinite amounts of people everywhere. I'm not saying that it's not infinitely valuable. What I'm saying is the Bible does not say God, the one who saves, did not say that the way He paid for everybody's sin was in that way. That's what I'm trying to tell you. The blood of Jesus Christ is entirely sufficient to save anyone and everyone that He wants. But the Bible does not teach that He died for every single person without exception. And that's what we need to understand this morning. And trust me, this might be difficult to, especially if it's the first time you've heard this, it's a very shocking thing. But at the end, I know this will help us understand grace better. It will help us understand God better. So it should be obvious to us that the cheap grace view does not save. It is a cheap and ineffective view. It is a cheap and ineffective substitute. And it's contrary to what God's Word teaches. Now second, there is another faulty view regarding the atonement. And all forms of this view fall under the category of what I call partial grace. First one was cheap grace. The next one is partial grace. Now this is the arrangement that I said is preached in many pulpits today. This is an arrangement that says Jesus Christ died on the cross to open up the possibility or to offer the possibility of being saved but that the rest ends up being up to the person, right? To their will, to their work, or to their own decisions in order to have them be saved. It says Jesus died for everyone, and now it is up to them to use their will to let Jesus save them. Usually comes in the form of having to ask Jesus into your heart, right? Like I said, there's some truth to this. You do have to repent. You do have to respond to the Gospel. You do have to. And so they're, they're appealing to something that in some sense is true. And this view sounds better than the previous one because at least it doesn't completely remove all of the verses about judgment and hell and, uh, and the justice of God like the previous view did. But the unfortunate thing is that it still falls short biblically, which means that a large mass of people, especially here in the South, 
And just any kind of people that say they're Christian in the world, they just don't understand this aspect. It's proclaimed so openly and so matter-of-factly that it's probably second nature to you that this is the way it works. When in fact, this partial grace view is not the way it works. And the reason that this view falls short is because it leaves bridging a part of the gap, a part of the gap between a holy God and a hell-deserving sinner, up to the hell-deserving sinner. Leaves a little bit of that gap to be bridged by the hell-deserving sinner. People who believe in this view would be appalled. They'd be very annoyed with me if I told them they believe in works-based salvation. Right? They would be frustrated. They would not think that that's the case. But the problem is people who believe in this view, even though they think they are not believing in works-based salvation, sadly, even if it is just the work of believing, are still believing in a work that determines salvation. Are still believing in the fact that a hell-deserving sinner must exercise that work in and of his own will, in and of his own choice, in and of his own decision to bridge whatever percentage of that gap between himself and the holy God. And we know that this will fall short. This cannot save. This view is unbiblical for many reasons, but especially because Paul teaches in Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 9, and he says that even the faith involved in salvation is itself a gift. For by grace you've been saved, through faith, that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift. Right? It's a gift. Even that saving faith is a gift from God. Lest anyone should boast. Lest any man should say, I made the right choice and it's up to me. So in further opposition to this uh, partial grace view, Scripture adds, for instance, many other verses. For instance, in Romans 3, it's, Romans 3, it says, there's none righteous, none who seeks God, none who does good. In other words, even if a sinner did have a possibility that they could make it to heaven according to this partial grace view, they wouldn't. Right? Even if they could, they wouldn't seek after God. They wouldn't try to make it happen. In Romans 9, in probably the most clear statement about this, Paul uh, teaches that there are vessels of wrath And there are others who are vessels of mercy. And this is all intended by God to reveal different aspects of His glory. The text says, God will have mercy on whom He will have mercy, and He will have compassion on whom He will have compassion. And then it also says, it is not of Him who wills, it is not of Him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. It's not of Him who wills. If it's not of Him who wills and it's not of Him who runs, then how can the partial grace view stand? How can the view that God died for everyone and now it's up to you and me to pick our way into heaven, to bring Jesus into our heart, into heaven? How can that stand? Clearly cannot. Additionally, in John 6.44, Jesus makes it clear that no one comes to Him unless they are drawn. No one comes unless they're drawn. So no one would make that choice, that willing choice, if it were not for God's grace already. If it were not for Him knowing His sheep and calling their name and calling His voice out and bringing them in, drawing them in by His love. So we see that partial grace doesn't align with Scripture. And this is very good news for us because if partial grace was correct, there would be no hope for you, no hope for me. We would all be lost. Partial grace was the right view. So on another note, when those who hold this view say that in one sense Jesus died for everybody, without knowing it, they're actually saying that God fails. They're saying that God failed in his redemptive work. They're saying that even though Jesus died for everybody and he tried really, really hard, hoping that they would be saved, he failed to accomplish his task. Only some of those people for whom he actually died would be saved. The omnipotent God-man here is shown failing at something in this view. So at first, this may seem, well, not that big of a deal to you. shouldn't, but it might. Oh, well, that doesn't sound like that big of an issue after all. But I would submit to you that this view is a theological tragedy. A theological complete tragedy. Because the biggest issue with the partial view of the atonement is that it unfortunately produces an inconsistency 
that creates disunity within the very Godhead itself, creates disunity within the united Trinity itself. I might be like, well, what do you, what do you mean by that? Let me explain. In the partial view, the Son would be going and dying and acting in order for a certain thing to happen, right? Namely, that all people would be saved. While at the same time, the Scripture clearly teaches, as we saw earlier, the Spirit and the Father would be working and willing for something else to happen. Namely, that the salvation of only the elect chosen before the foundation of the world would happen. You see, there's a disjoint here. Jesus would be aiming for one thing. The Father and the Spirit would be aiming for something else. This is a tragic fundamental disagreement within the Godhead, within the Trinity itself. It dissolves, ultimately, our understanding of God properly. We know, thankfully, that God has no such inconsistencies at all within His action and within His nature. Only particular grace makes sense in this regard, with regard to our doctrine of the Trinity, who God truly is. And any theology that creates disunity within the Trinity, I would attest to you, any theology that creates disunity within God, within the perfect will and mind of God, is definitely not true. That's almost the clincher here. I almost don't have to go on proving this anymore. Any theology that could disunify the Trinity in this way, in their will and their mind, is definitely not true theology. Now similarly, another thing that has to do with God's action and His justice and things like that in relation to the partial view is that if it were true, if it were true that um, the partial view was correct, then for all the people who ended up in hell, their sins would actually be punished two times. Not one time, but two times. Jesus paid for their sin once on the cross. Then since certain people didn't accept His payment, they would pay for those same sins again in hell. This doesn't make sense. I don't know how else to put it. The just God does not punish the same sins twice. Either you're His sheep, He paid for your sin, or He allows you to go on. He allows you to go on in your rebellion against Him. And He allows you to pay for those sins yourself. Now the interesting thing is we don't know who that is. If you're wondering, is that you? Then maybe you should repent. Maybe you should come to Him today. See what I mean? There's a mystery here, but that's beautiful. So now we've seen that in addition to the cheap grace of universalism and the partial grace that's preached in many pulpits today, there is no... Um, yeah, these two views, just let's just put it this way, these two views will not work. These will not suffice to save sinners. Now before moving on to the final and the biblical view, I want to briefly deal with an important objection that somebody might make to what I've been saying. Now you might even be making this objection yourself at this moment. You might be saying, well, aren't there a lot of Bible verses that clearly say that Jesus died for the whole world? Aren't they out there? For example, John 1.29, which shows John the Baptist declaring, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or a famous one, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, right? So when reading, we must always keep in mind an important principle, which is that Scripture interprets itself. So when we read throughout Scripture that there is a place like hell, that there is judgment upon sin, and that God will by no means pardon those who are not in Jesus Christ, then we need to apply those truths when we're trying to interpret a passage like this. When John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world cannot possibly mean that Jesus actually takes away every single person's sins without exception. Because if that were the case, the Gospel of John would be teaching either cheap or partial grace, and John would be claiming that the whole um, gamut of Scriptures regarding hell and judgment and all of those are wrong. Reading the Bible faithfully, we are unsurprised then to find out that there are many different uses of the word world in the Bible or cosmos in the Bible in the New Testament. And most of them do not mean all people without exception. They just don't mean that. They mean a whole bunch of things. Sometimes they mean uh, the satanic power that represents the world that is working. It says, for instance, do not love the world or the things of this world. It can mean um, 
for instance, all kinds of different people. So I'll, I'll touch on that now. So what is, t- what is being taught here in John, Bapt- John the Baptist's declaration is a contrast to the common view in John's day, which was that the ethnically Jewish people thought they were so unique and chosen by God that only their sins were possible to be forgiven and that the sins of all the different tribes, tongues, and nations were not included. It was very significant for John to come and to say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because he knows this is the Lamb that's going to break that, that offer of the Gospel open and spread it to the Gentiles. Now the same lesson explains the other passages in the New Testament that appear to contradict what I'm saying about particular grace. When they say, for example, that God desires all men to be saved. There's a verse that says that. Such verses refer to all people without distinction rather than all people without exception. In other words, when we get to heaven one day, there will be young, old, male, female, rich, poor, Jew, and Gentile people there. There will be all kinds of people there. Those same authors that say God desires all people to be saved very clearly say in their same writings that not everybody will be saved. So it's all kinds of people in that context. They know that not every last person is going to be in heaven and that the partial grace view also is not going to suffice. Those same authors say say the exact opposite to a partial grace view. That would be interpreting John and these other passages in that way that says it's for everybody. In addition to that, when it says God desires all men to be saved, it's important to note that God regularly desires some things that He doesn't decree or that He doesn't cause to come to pass. You might say, what do you mean? If he's, you know, well, it's easy. Does God desire for each and every one of us to obey the Ten Commandments every single day for every single minute of every day? Right? He does. Does that mean that He causes every single one of us to constantly obey the Ten Commandments for every single minute of every single day? No. He desires sometimes things that He does not cause to come to pass. And there's no contradiction in God. And another explanation of these verses is that some of them, some of them are dealing with something called common grace, which is that sense in which God has not a saving grace, but a very kind and love and, a, and, and, a, and generosity towards unbelievers, people who will never end up in heaven. So there's these passages, you know, that it talks about that God lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust, right? He does good to all people. He does kind things to all people. This doesn't mean that He's offered salvation to all people. This doesn't mean that Jesus Christ... It does mean that He offered salvation to all people. It does not mean that Jesus Christ died for every single person to atone for their sins. In fact, it kind of serves as the opposite effect. If you're receiving common grace from God, you're you're allowed to breathe. You're allowed to have your heart beating. You're allowed to have the sun shining on your face. You're allowed to have babies. You're allowed to have all these different things taking place in your life. If that's what's happening to you and you use all of that and instead of turning to God and repenting and believing in Him, that kindness, that kind of all people kindness isn't going to serve to save you. It's going to serve as greater judgment upon you in the end. It's not going to serve as... It's, it's just an indication of how patient God is. He's so patient. The God who gives this offer of the Gospel is so patient and He shows kindness to all people, even those who hate Him, even those who reject Him. So an obvious application for us as finite human beings who live in the mystery of all of this and who do not know who God's elect sheep are is that we should share the gospel all the time. We should present it openly, freely to all people. Why? Because God does plan to save all kinds of people. He does. And He does not tell you which ones of them will be saved. And so your job is to go and preach. Your job is to be faithful with what He's given to you. And so I have to make this clear. Though I do not believe in the universal extent of the atonement, all orthodox, sound preachers and teachers do believe in the universal offer and proclamation of the Gospel. We cannot get rid of that. We cannot um, let our understanding of limited atonement or anything like that or of a particular grace remove that offer of the Gospel. Because why? Because we are not the one who understands the decree of God. We are not the one who gets to make the decision and know who His sheep are and are not. We are the ones who preach and proclaim 
and love people. That's our job in the picture. So we pray that an understanding of particular grace would never produce a sense of superiority and a lack of urgency to evangelize and bring in the nations. The way that it does, for example, with those Jews, those ones that John's message there was to oppose, they thought they were so special. They thought they were the elect. They were so spectacular. We must never allow this kind of a superiority or a a self-righteousness regarding our election to somehow stifle our urgency to evangelize. May Satan never warp this wonderful doctrine of God's grace in that way. May Satan never twist it in our hearts and use this amazing doctrine to excuse us from evangelizing and proclaiming the truth. May we not hold this as a badge of honor, right? But instead, let us hold this as a motivation for humility and service. In some sense, it is a very great honor, right? To be an elect, to be one of God's sheep. But you don't hold that. You don't hold that high. You don't hold that against God. You hold that in a way that is very humble and actively ready to preach and ready to work, ready to proclaim the gospel. So the fact that God's grace is a particular grace and that he has shown his grace to a specific group of his chosen people is a sacred and mysterious fact. It is not for us to know who is and isn't elect. It is for us to be obedient, to be zealous for good works that were prepared in advance for us to do. And to live and evangelize faithfully, knowing that the sufficient blood of Jesus will accomplish the task in those that he draws. Will definitely accomplish the task in his children, in his sheep. So as opposed to acting as some kind of stifling of our mission, this election, this atonement, this understanding that we have of particular grace should fuel our mission. If the price has already been paid, God's people are already known by name before the foundation of the world... Then we, like Paul in Acts chapter 18, when preparing to enter into a new mission field or to engage with someone at work in an evangelistic situation, we should hear the encouragement of the Lord. Do not be afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent, for I am with you. I have many people in this city. The thing that reassures Paul, the thing that gives him encouragement is that God assures him that there are people to be saved, that God will bring fruit, and that ultimately God knows where his sheep are. He knows there are people there that need to be saved. He knows there are people there that need to hear the gospel. This should serve as fuel, not some kind of thing that makes us proud, that stifles our desire to share the gospel. That's probably the biggest objection to this view regarding the atonement, or this view even of election. Why would, why would you even share the gospel? Why would you even do this? It's fuel. Trust me, it's fuel. It is not a hindrance. shouldn't be. If it is a hindrance, you're leaving it wrong, you're understanding it wrong, you're applying it wrong in some way. So we've already touched on it in various ways, but the third view that we'll now look at regarding the extent of the atonement is the correct one. Like I said earlier, the only kind of grace that can save sinners is a particular grace. Particular grace. This grace can save because it is not a cheap grace, but it is a costly grace that changes people. We find that the death of Jesus Christ has a lasting and transformative impact on those for whom he died. Because Jesus Christ has paid the ultimate price. He's paid the price already. So that the Spirit would indwell them. So that the Spirit would change them. So that the Spirit would produce fruit in them. Not one single drop of Jesus' blood will go to waste. Not a single drop of it will ever go to waste. It will have its effect. It was not spilled in vain. Every drop will have its application to the saving and transforming of the sheep for which Jesus has laid down His life. The sheep that he's known since the foundation of the world. As such, this costly and particular grace always produces obedience in God's people. It always does. When it's had its effect, it always does. It's not like partial grace. It's not like cheap grace. When someone's truly redeemed, when someone's truly blood-bought, it always produces obedience in God's people. That's why Paul writes in Titus of the costly and transformative particular grace. When he says, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. In other words, the reason he's picked these special people, the characteristic that marks out these special chosen sheep that God has called, 
is so that they would be zealous for good works. So that they would go out into the world doing good. Proving that they've been saved. Proving that that blood is not cheap. That that blood is costly and effective. Jesus died so that we can live lives that are pleasing to Him. So that we cannot live lives that are cheap grace, partial grace, but so that we can live lives that produce fruit. Real fruit. Lasting fruit. Eternal fruit. Works that are prepared in advance for us to walk in. Works that accord with the way God is and the way that He's structured everything to go in terms of salvation. So furthermore, in contrast to partial grace, we see that the particular grace of God in Jesus Christ is a full grace. Jesus does not only do a partial job of His saving people, nor does He only make it possible or potential for them to be saved, but He makes it an absolute factual certainty. Jesus says in John 6, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. In other words, there is not one single sheep that will be lost. Not one of the sheep that He knows by name will go without a shepherd and will slip from His hands. And that's because the particular grace of God is a full grace. It's a grace that accomplishes the task. Nothing is left up to human will. Nothing is left up to human error. The will of man is not the final deciding factor. Yes, you choose. Yes, you decide. But it is up to the will of God ultimately, which will, end, which will be the deciding factor of whether or not you end up being in heaven one day. If Jesus' blood is on His sheep, this is an amazing certainty. If Jesus' blood has touched a sheep, that sheep will never slip out of His hand. His hand is wrapped around them securely. And His salvation for them is a full one. It's not a partial one. So now we've arrived really at what I've been working hard to get to. Okay. I want us to be able to better understand grace. I've been dealing with these details so that we can better understand what it means that God knows us by name. God knows you by name. You're a Christian. He knows me by name. He knows each and every one of us if we're in Christ by name. That's because of the particular grace of Jesus' atonement. He's always known His sheep. And as our verse says, He's always known them by name. And this is no new thing. This is an old biblical fact. This is an old truth that's been going on for the whole Bible. For example, Moses, when he's walking in the desert, taking care of his father's flocks, and God calls to him out of the bush, he says to him, not, hey, you, guy, generic Moses. He says, Moses, Moses, calls him by name. And then later in Exodus 33, Moses hears from God, and God tells him, you have found Grace in my sight, and I know you by name. You have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. Is this not particular grace on display at its finest? Moses, Moses, come. Moses, Moses, I have a task for you. Moses, Moses, I've paid for you. Moses, Moses, you're going to be a priest. Calls him by name, and he calls him by name and later assures him that he has found grace in the sight of God and that he is known by God by name. We're in chapter 10 of John. Just a chapter later, Jesus, as a sort of type for the new life, the calling that calls each of us by name to come and follow Jesus, in chapter 11, raises Lazarus from the dead. He doesn't call out generically. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come forth by name. The same way that he calls Seth by name, or Prashant by name, or Tony by name. Wilton by name, if you're in Christ, He calls you by name when you come to Him because of the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. When you come, we can actually say if we're in Christ, if we're in Him, if we're in our mediator, we can actually say that God knows us by name. Remember verse 3? He knows His own sheep and calls them by name. Verse 14, Jesus says, I know my sheep and am known by my own. Only because of our mediator. Only because of the one who's known us before the foundation of the world. Came on a special mission to save us. To call us. To get us. By name. 
This fact that God knows you and I by name is intended to produce deep, deep humility and reverence in our lives. That's the effect. We can understand this aspect of grace. It cannot help but produce humility and reverence for God and worship for Him. Why? Because the only way that the Holy God can call you and I wicked sinners that deserve to go to hell by name is because of an atoning sacrifice. Is because of the laying down of Jesus' life for His sheep. If we are a sheep that He has saved according to His eternal wisdom, we know full well that it is not based on any goodness that's in us whatsoever. If He chose some and He didn't choose others and He elected them before the foundation of the world, it could not be based on anything good that they did. It could not be based on anything that they could boast about. So it cannot produce pride. It cannot produce stagnancy. It cannot produce anything. It produces worship and reverence. It has to. In addition to that, the fact that God knows you and I by name also produces deep familiarity and relationship to God. So we may now spend all the rest of our days, all the rest of our living days, after we die and go to heaven, all the rest of those days rejoicing in the fact that by the costly blood of Jesus, we are able to come into a relationship of deep familiarity and closeness with our God. The Holy God, the just God, who otherwise would be terrifyingly scary to us, instead of being terrifyingly scary and far from us, though, admittedly, He still is blazing with holiness. He still is just as glorious and intimidating and scary as He otherwise would have been. But because of Jesus Christ, because of the atonement, because you've been called by name, He comes close to you. He comes close to us. So close, in fact, that He lives in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So close He comes to us that He knows us by name. lives in us. So this doctrine actually means that there's a chance we could be known by God. That we have always been known by God. When He called us to Himself, He was not doing it haphazardly, but He was doing it specifically by name. So earlier in the service, Prashant read from Zechariah 3, one of my favorite passages about the high priest Joshua being accused by Satan before God. Joshua was one of the true sheep. He was a chosen man. The passage said he was like a brand plucked from the fire. Thinking of the world as a fire. He's a brand plucked from the fire. In that chapter, he was stripped of his filth and sinfulness and he was clothed in a white robe, which is only possible from being washed in Jesus' particular by name calling, atoning blood. The fact that God had specially chosen him and stood to advocate for him is what made it possible for Joshua to stand before God. Joshua had particular grace. Joshua's name, like that of Jesus, by no coincidence, means the Lord saves. Joshua was there covered by the particular grace that saves. The particular grace that's available to us in Christ about the costly and particular atoning blood. The one that actually can save. His name literally means the Lord saves. He's the Lord that saves. So next time when you're accused by Satan... This is how this doctrine about grace has very, very amazing application to our lives. Don't fight back against Satan's accusation by saying, I made the right choice. I'm a righteous guy. Telling Satan, no, I'm not actually as bad as you think I am. It's not going to work. Don't do that as though you believe in partial grace. Don't try and say like those other ones who believe in cheap grace, no, Satan, what I did wasn't that big of a deal. It wasn't that big of a deal after all. It wasn't that bad. Instead, you need to admit to God and to Satan and to anyone else who's willing to listen to you that you are a sinner. Tell him, Satan, you're right. I'm a sinner. And I'm a worse one than you probably even think I am. And tell God the same thing. And acknowledge who you really are. And then acknowledge this. Tell him you would be hopeless. You would be thrown into hell just like everyone else. 
And every accusation that was thrown at you would stick like glue. Were it not for the particular, costly, full grace of God shown in the atonement of Jesus Christ that clothed you with a white robe, that gave you a righteousness that is not your own. You can tell the accuser that you're God's sheep. He knows you by name. You are known by God and you know God because of Jesus, because of His blood, because of His righteousness. Now I recommend that if you try this, I would like you to come back to me and and tell me after a time of trying to practice this before the accusations of our enemy, come back and tell me whether any of those accusations stuck on you in the courtroom of God. And I will be very shocked. If you're in Christ and you use that claim before the throne room of God, like Joshua had before the throne room of God, that your righteousness is a robe given to you from someone else, I don't think that's going to stick. It's not going to stick. It cannot stick. Christ laid down His life for His sheep. He called His sheep by name. You are one of those called by name. That means that blood is on you. That means those accusations cannot stick. They cannot stand. It's impossible for them to stand. And I'll tell you that straight. It will not stick. It cannot stick if there's the blood of Jesus Christ on you and if you're one of those chosen before the foundation of the world. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is written on his hands. My name is graven on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can tell me that I have to leave from before him. So when you are accused, brother or sister, remember that when Christ went to the cross, He went there not vaguely with some rough idea of who He might save or who might make the right choice to come to Him. No, that's not the case. He went to the cross knowing your name, with your name on His hands, with your name in His mind. He loves you specifically. He died for you particularly. And His grace is a particular grace. And that's the only kind of grace that can ever save you. Let's pray. Father, God, we, we sin every day. We are worse than we even know we are. We do not have a consciousness of all the ways that we do not live up to our high calling. But Lord, we know that your grace is not cheap. It's not partial. We thank you that when we stand before your throne one day, Lord, we can claim that Jesus Christ died for us. And that he had always planned to do so. And he'd chosen us before the foundation of the world. Not for any good that's in us. Lord, thank you for that reality. And I pray that you would apply it to our hearts this morning. Apply it to our hearts, Lord. And help us to live in light of it. I pray this in Jesus' precious name. In his blood. Amen.